Well, there are some outlines. Uh, does anybody need an outline? Did anybody not get the sheet for this morning? It's different than you got last night. David needs one. Other than that, anybody else? Looks like everybody. Oh, uh, John and Danny. The rest of you can just take notes. All right. Very good. Well, we come again this morning uh, to look at this topic of the, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. And we will get to uh, the topics of the New Testament, uh, Lord willing, tomorrow. That'll be the focus of the adult Bible class, the morning worship. And then, Lord willing, the evening will be primarily application as to how to apply this. There is just an, an unbelievable wealth of information on this topic. Uh, when you begin to study it, you find that just about every Puritan writer that you want to pick up has written at least one sermon, if not more, uh, on the topic of the Christian Sabbath. One in particular stood out to me as our brother uh, asked uh, David to pray for our nation, and that was a, a, a sermon by uh, Thomas Brooks, and it's called The Lamentation for London. And after the great London fire, he preached a message on some of the reasons why that maybe came upon them uh, as, a, as a city. Uh, and one of them, one of the points that he made was uh, a lack of desire for God and his day. And uh, made some very excellent points. I won't be quoting a lot from that. But still, I mean, there's just, there's just a plethora uh, of uh, information out there, and Lord willing, I'll, I'll give some, some suggestions for books uh, this afternoon. As you see in your notes there, the uh, title for today is Sur Surprisingly Relevant Prophecy, Isaiah 58, verses 13 to 14. And so if you turn to Isaiah 58, verses 13 to 14, I'll just tell you where that title came from. I say it's surprisingly relevant. It's obviously relevant because it's about, again, the Sabbath, uh, specifically mentioned in verse 13, and a holy day, mentioned again in verse 13. But I say surprisingly because, again, when I first came to the doctrine of the, the Christian Sabbath, uh, all I knew of was Exodus 20. I didn't even know that it was repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Now, I'd read my Bible as a kid growing up, but Deuteronomy 5, a second giving of the law, it just did not, was not part of my thinking. And that it appeared actually in Genesis chapter 2, you've got to be, it just it blew my mind. And then the more I read and the more I studied and the more I came across, and then there's a little book called uh, Call the Sabbath a Delight by Walt Chantry. Now, he takes this particular verse and really, these verses, and opens them up. And, excuse me, and that, was just, that just, again, exploded my mind in, in terms of the actual benefits and glories of this particular day. So what I'd like for us to do this, this afternoon, or excuse me, this morning, is to look at these two verses in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. This is a prophet who is uh, using the Sabbath, as many of the prophets did, spoke of the Sabbath in the way that the people of God had broken it and how God had brought judgment upon them in part because of their Sabbath breaking. But now, follow along as I read verses 13 and 14. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own desire on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of Yahweh honorable, and honor it by not doing your own ways, by not finding your own desire and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in Yahweh 
and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will free feed you with the inheritance or the heritage of Jacob your father, and the mouth for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. These verses uh, are come at the end of a chapter in which the prophet Isaiah is addressing uh, the hypocrisy and the formalism of the people of Israel. He begins by talking about their formalistic prayers and their formalistic fasts, and then he tells them about how they, what they should be doing in terms of what a real fast unto God looks like, and then he closes it out with this uh, statement about the, about the Sabbath. So you see, I have uh, two points. The first, then, is the prophetic restatement of the commandment, because that's really what he does. The prophet restates the commandment in a slightly different way, in an expanded way, with some illustration. And then the prophet adds, under the inspiration of the Spirit, promises to the commandment, the prophetic addition of promises to the commandment. And those are the two things that we'll look at uh, this morning. So first of all, the prophetic restatement of the commandment. This takes up pretty much verse 13. Uh, where, he, where he states the importance of the, of the, of the Sabbath, where he states the, the responsibility to keep the Sabbath. He puts it in an, an if-then clause, but that doesn't mean it's, it's your choice. He's just saying, if you do this for the Sabbath, which you're supposed to do, then here's the benefit that comes. So first of all, let's look at the purposeful redirection the purposeful redirection. In the words, turn your foot. You, if because of the Sabbath, you turn your foot. This turning of the foot is uh, uh, turning it from something to something. And notice it says, because of the Sabbath. Again, I said this was the restatement of the fourth commandment. Because of the Sabbath, there at the beginning, the next phrase, uh, desire on my holy day. And again, holy day, it's in italics, but it's still referring to the Lord holy day of Yahweh or Jehovah. And so this is clearly talking about the Sabbath, clearly talking about a day chosen and set apart holy unto God. A holy day, therefore, is a day which reflects the character of God. This is where they're turning. This is where the turning takes place, has to do with relative to the Sabbath. What does it mean then to turn or to return or to turn back or to take your foot from something? Well, when it talks about feet in the Bible, it often talks about feet as the way that we, we walk in our ways. We talked about, we're going to talk about ways in a little bit, but here's a matter of the, the feet is what carries us in those ways. And so the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I turned my feet to your testimonies. That means I walked in the way of your testimonies. I obeyed your commandments. In Proverbs chapter 4, maybe you're familiar with that verse that talks about guarding your heart above all else. Well, it goes on to describe what a life is like where the heart is guarded, or, or it could be describing how to guard your heart when it says, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you, Proverbs 4.25. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn, this is a different word, but do not turn to the right hand or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. So turning or turning back one's foot is a conscious choice to change direction in life. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? But here the prophetic picture is, turn your foot from stepping on the Sabbath day. 
turn your foot from walking on the Sabbath day. Pull that foot back from stepping on holy ground. And that's either because he doesn't want you to defile it with a polluted foot or because he doesn't want it to be trampled. And either of those words could be, be descriptive of this. It's, it's somebody who wants to trample the day. is going to come in with their feet and they're going to stomp all over it. Or somebody with polluted feet. You know, it's, it's the kind of people you go to their house and they've got white carpet. Right? And, and you walk in and what, oh, would you mind taking your shoes off? Right? Oh, and, and put on, if they're really fastidious, and put these slippers on so you don't get your stinky feet on my clean carpet. Right? They don't want this carpet to be defiled in any way. They certainly don't want you to come in with your work boots on from working in the garden and tromp through with your muddy boots. Well, this is basically the, the, the picture that's here. It's either the, the polluting of the ground with, with dirty feet or trampling the ground with hobnail boots. It says, turn your foot from the Sabbath. But what are the boots? What are the feet that are talked about here? Turn your foot. What does he mean by that? Well, he tells us, he explains it. From doing your own desire, and he's going to go on to expand that, but that's the first part, from doing your own desire or your, or your own pleasure. That's word pleasure. It's an important word here in this particular passage. It comes up a couple of times, this word pleasure or desire. And it's just a word for common, ordinary, everyday kinds of pleasures that we enjoy in life. It's used throughout the Bible just to describe those kinds of pleasures. Some of them pretty intense. A, a man who has a desire for a woman. Uh, Shechem has a desire for Dinah to the point where he convinces the whole town to get uh, circumcised so that he can have this woman. He so desires her. It can be used of, just, of things just like uh, eating food or enjoying different uh, uh, delights in life. Just, it's just a general word for pleasure. It's used earlier, and I think that's why it's used here in verses 2 and 3, to say that these people were actually thinking they were desiring the right thing by going through the practice of praying to God, when in fact they weren't really desiring God in their fasting and prayers. It says they were desiring money. They were causing their servants to work hard on this particular day. That was their desire. That was their pleasure. So the boots here that are supposed to be pulled back is my doing or our doing, our desire, our pleasure, living for those things which please me on God's day. Now, I'll make all the, the exception clauses later, right? But this is the point. So it's not about your pleasure on my day. Draw that foot back. But then he goes on in verse 13 and expands this a little bit more. An expanded description, which he, go, which he gives us. And he says, after he, he has some positive things, he says at the end, by not finding your own desire or speaking your own words. And here he uses the same word desire, but now he expands it. He seems to refocus it. It's not just the general thing of desire, but it's the desire which has to do with, with the, with the uh, pleasures of life, not just the everyday things that you do. The first one is a much broader term, using it in a much broader way. Here he's, he's narrowing it down because he, he compares it to your ways, not finding your ways, right? And, and honor it, not doing your own ways. That's what, not doing your own ways. And here it's, it's that same thing we saw in the, in the fourth commandment, right? Don't do your things on my day. 
So it's stepping back from the work. It's stepping back from the path that I normally walk throughout the week. It's stepping back from my normal everyday pursuits. Activities which may be legitimate all the rest of the week are not legitimate on that one day. He says, pull the foot back from doing those things on this day. And in seeking, he has this word, seeking your pleasure, it's, it, it intensifies it in the sense of don't go about focusing your mind upon and your efforts upon finding your pleasure on my day. The parts of life here that are, are truly pleasurable, the dessert at the end of the meal, if you will. And I'm not saying you can't have dessert on Sunday. <laughs> That's not the point. But it's the things that when work ends, pleasure begins. You know what they are. They're the, the fishing trip. They're the uh, shopping, the, sport, the sports watching or participating, the going to the beach, the, the uh, woodworking, the entertainment, the recreation of all kinds. This is what he's saying here. So he's, he's taking this word pleasure in a general sense at the first time, and then he comes back, he says, but let me talk about ways and pleasures, anything that you do on the normal during the week, and especially those things which you focus on as filling up the, and satisfying your heart and your desires. In addition here, he uses the word seeking, and it's not to, to be that which you focus your attention on. You know, it's where the eyes go, the heart goes. That was the, the aspect of that Proverbs 4 passage. Where the eyes go, the heart goes. Where the eyes go, the feet follow. I learned very early on as a, as a kid playing a game of uh, pillow warfare where you're standing on a beam and con the competition is you're standing on a beam and you've got a pillow and the other person's got a pillow and you're trying to knock them off. So the best way to do it is get them to look to the side for any reason whatsoever and then they're gone. Because as soon as you look, that's where the feet want to go. You do it. You know, you're riding in the car. Oh, white am on the line. <laughs> right? Because where the eyes go, the feet go. And that's the point here. He says, when you fix your eyes on something, then that's what you're, you're going to be going after. Right? Some of you do that at work, right? You get focused. Laser focused. I got to get this done. You're working. I got to work on this. And you focus on it. And he's saying, when you come to my day, don't focus on those things which are your pleasure. Don't focus on those things which delight you on my day. That's not to be your focus. And then he goes on. He says something else here, which is, I find, probably the most challenging part of this in many ways. He says, not doing your own ways, not finding your own desire, and not speaking your own word. God wants us all to become monks? No. Not take a vow of silence for the, for the, the, the Sabbath. But it literally says not speaking speech or not wor wording words or talking talk. It's an intensification in the, in the Hebrew. And, and it's meant to identify something that is more than just normal conversation. In Exodus 4, in verse 14, similar, this, these two words appear together as well. Then the anger of Yahweh burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, Levite? And he knows how to speak speech. He knows how to speak fluently. This is somebody whose words just come to them. He says, this is the idea. It's words that come fluently. Deuteronomy 18.20. But the prophet who words a word, that is, a word presumptuously in my name, he, just, he speaks because he wants to say it, and he says it in the name of God. It's really not God's word. 
He's speaking presumptuously. Hosea 10 and verse 4 puts it this way. They speak mere words. They speak speaking. It's just empty words. So really, what's he saying here that we, should be, that we should be looking for and watching against on the Sabbath? He's telling his people, don't do the things you do during the week. Don't focus all of your attention on your personal pleasures. And don't just be full of words. Words for words' sake. Speaking to hear your own voice. Spreading your own wisdom. Filling the air with empty, idle Words, words without purpose. Don't fill my special day with common words, is basically what he's saying. So summary then of, of the command as it's given here, as it's prophetically restated for us, is that we are to make a conscious, deliberate change of direction in our activities and our words on the Sabbath. We've already seen it, right? So in other words, we're to cease from doing our normal work for the week. We're to cease from focusing upon our personal pleasures. And in America, we're, we're, really, we're, all, we're all about that, aren't we? Work six days, why? Because you want work five days, four days if you can, because you want to extend your weekend. Because that's really living. And God's saying, no, no, that's not really living. Really living is working six days and resting one with me. But we're so filled with this idea of pleasure, we're, we're pummeled with it and all the clickbait and everything that pops up. Why? To get us to pleasure. Think about pleasure. Consumed with pleasure. And he's saying, don't seek your pleasures on my day. And restrain even how you use your words. Now, we should always be doing that. In the multitude of words, there is no lack for sin. One of the first verses my mother had me memorize. And so we should be restraining our words, especially on God's day. Take thoughtful, we need to take, as uh, Alec Matir says, we need to take a thoughtful approach to how we use the day. It is not a matter of personal preference going your own way or personal indulgence doing your own thing. So let me just illustrate. In other words, when we come to the Lord's day, we need to take off our work boots. We need to take off our work boots and leave them outside before treading on the special ground of the Lord's Day. Isn't it true that our work boots can just trample the Lord's Day? Because they just come and say, well, you know, I've got so much I need to do and I just didn't have time to get it all done and I've just got so much more to do. My desk is piling up, my inbox is piling up and, and those work boots, they just want to trample the day. He says, leave the work boots outside. Take off the I'm going to have to use several terms here because from the West, from the East, take off your sneakers, take off your trainers, take off your running shoes, whatever you call them, tennis shoes, whatever they are, take them off. He says, you're not to be about your pleasures on my day. It's not about sports. Take off the hiking boots, take off the golf spikes, take off the dance shoes before entering in on my special ground because it's a holy ground for a holy God on his holy day. And if I can put the other in kind of the same kind of language, put away the shop talk, turn off the sports commentary, and stop the perpetual political pontificating on my day. It's not what it's for. 
That doesn't mean you can't talk about those things because they can be very profitable and edifying if they're done in the sight of God and for the purpose of edification and for the purpose of what they're given. But we're so easily taken up with these things, aren't we? And th the thought of God gets swallowed up and trampled and lost and ignored. And I even say we have to be careful how we joke. I mean, there's some brethren that uh, I told them, I've told them on, at times, you know, we just can't talk on Sunday. Because every time I get near, it's just like these sparks start going, and it just, it just happens. You know, the, the joke goes one back and forth and back and forth, and pretty soon it's just elevated. And it's like, wait a minute. A laughter, laughter's not bad, and, a, and, a, and a, an occasional jab is a way we show love, especially as men, isn't it? <laughs> it's how we show we love one another. But it can easily get out of hand. We need to govern our speech. The Lord's day is to be different from every other day. It's to be different from every other day. It's not meant to be like every other day. It should be evident in our activities, in its effect on our speech, on what pleases me on that day, on what my thoughts are set on. Now, as I said, qualifications, God is not prescribing gloomy, dour behavior on the Sabbath. He's not saying, I want you all to come in, just mm, your dark hats and your dark clothes. and mm, It's the Sabbath day. No, that's not what he wants. Far from it, he's going to talk about some things that are excellent delights. We should actually be delighting. It's wonderful that you see the brethren. I love this place. Nope, you, you can't get out of the place. People just want to stand around and talk. That's wonderful because we, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. I love the conversation that some of, some of you, I, just, I, mean, I love to be near you because I know you're going to start the conversation and move the conversation in a, in a way that is spiritually edifying and those are the kind of brethren we want to hang around, especially on the Lord's Day. That's the kind of brethren we should seek to be, especially on the Lord's Day. But let's go on, because then after talking about this purposeful redirection, the turning of our foot and the restatement, he, he adds something here. He gives a profound realignment. You see, this is going to take a deep heart change. And that's what's in the middle of verse 13. Call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of Yahweh, honorable, and honor it by not doing your own ways, by not finding your own desire, by speaking your own word. So here's the, here's the heart change seen right here. Call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of Yahweh, honorable, and honor it. We are to call, proclaim, describe speak out about God's holy day and call it a delight. Now, this is a different Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word which means exquisite delight, exquisite pleasure. It's a word which describes a, a man or a woman with refined, delicate tastes. They can't drink any coffee. It's got to be this coffee. They won't eat any steak. It's got to be Colorado grain-fed beef. They have delicate 
tastes, right? And this is what it talks about. It's used also in Isaiah 13 to talk about luxurious palaces, not just a nice house. This is the house that is decked out with the best of furniture, the most comfortable chairs, the wonderful pillows. Now, this is the illustration I used some time ago when I preached on this, and it's the best illustration I could come up with. Imagine with me that you have a day off with your family and you decide we're going to go to Greenview Park for a picnic. And you've got the hot dogs and the hamburgers ready and you are ready to go and you're going to go out on the grass and you're going to sit down with all the mosquitoes and you're going to enjoy a picnic. And that's a pleasure, right? But then compare that to somebody saying, listen, join me at Jordan Pond in Acadia National Park for tea where you can get your popovers with jam and you can get uh, lobster and you can get salmon and you can sit there and look out over the lake and see the mountains off in the distance. Or sitting on the lawn at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park there in the Rocky, Rocky Mountains and looking up and seeing these magnificent mountains and having steak served to you and shrimp served to you and people coming up and making sure that you're well fed and everything is nicely set out for you. You say, the one is wonderful. It's a pleasure. It's more of a normal pleasure. The other is more of an exquisite pleasure. Or some of you may be Ruth, Stick, Ruth Chris Steakhouse. If you've ever, I've never been there, but I've heard this pretty good steak. But see, this is, this is, the, this is the, the, the difference here. He's saying, listen, you've got these pleasures which God gives us. They're all God-given pleasures. All week long, they're God-given pleasures. Every one of them. But there's exquisite ones, he says, on this day. And in fact, you should be calling my day an exquisite pleasure. Now, for that to happen, what needs to take place? I'm either going to be a hypocrite and just keep saying it. Or I've got to have a change of heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I actually have to be able to say, in my heart, this day is better than all other days. And I need to have a heart's desire which says, being in God's house and being with God's people is far more a greater blessing than any golf score I ever got. Than any promotion I ever got. That's what he's saying. I'm not, this isn't just Pastor Carlson talking. This is, what, this is what it says. You should call the Sabbath a delight. And if I'm going to do that, it's got to be from the heart. He's not calling on just outward words. That's what they've been doing at the beginning. So he's actually addressing this whole issue of their outward words. And he says also go on to call the holy day of Yahweh honorable. Now this reality of of delighting in God and delighting in God's house and having this kind of exquisite uh, expression, and I, and I passed over this in my notes, is all over the Psalms, right? Uh, just one example, Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, asked from Yahweh, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in his temple. One thing, the psalmist says. If I can have one thing, I want to be in God's house. And I want what I enjoy in Yahweh's house of seeing his beauty in that house. It's not just a matter of sitting there in a comfortable seat. It's going in there to meditate on his beauty, to meditate upon God. That's, that's what I want all week long. He's not saying I want to give up my work and go live in the house. 
He's saying, I want what I have there throughout the week. But it's peculiar to that place. And this is all over the Psalms. That's why the psalmist says, let us, it was glad, I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. But he says, call the day, the holy day, honorable. Yahweh's holy day, honorable. And honor it. Now that it is a third person, masculine, singular. So it could be either it or him. And I think him actually fits a little bit better, but you can't really divide it and him, as we've already seen. If you love God, you should love his day. If you're going to delight in his day, you're going to delight in God. And we'll see more of that in this particular passage. It's a holy day because God's character marks the entire day. It is a day which is filled with him. It is not just delighting in being able to put away your normal responsibilities and rest. That's a wonderful blessing. That's a physical blessing that comes with the Lord's day is to be able to, the, the, the Sabbath is to be able to rest, physically rest. That's a blessing, but that's not all it's about. And that's not what it's primarily about. And that's the, not the one thing we should find our greatest joy in. But we should be calling the day honorable, worthy of glory, that which ought to bring glory and honor to God. Psalm 34, 37 and verse 4 says this, a verse that's often misused. Delight yourself in Yahweh. And that's the exquisite delight. Find exquisite delight in Yahweh. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay. Okay, if I, I'm going to delight myself in God and then maybe I'll get that new house. No, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> If, I'm, if this is my exquisite delight that I'm delighting in God, then what is it that I'm going to get? More of God. He's going to give me the desire of my heart because this is what my heart is desiring. He's going to give me more of him, more communion with him. I've been reading Richard Sibbs on communing with God. On this particular, on Psalm 27 particularly. But this whole issue of do I really find my greatest delight and pleasure in communing with the living God? I've only met a few people in my life that just really seem to exude that kind of disposition. Many of you exude it far better than I do, and I hope that I learn from you. That's why I'm reading the book, is to stir up my own heart. But he's saying, is this my exquisite delight? The day is honorable. The day is, is to be glorified by my delighting in him and my meeting with him and his meeting with me. I want to cause this day to be I want to cause him and th on this day to be honored and glorified. So my focus is not on my pleasure. My focus is on him. More of him. The idea is that the concern is of my heart will be taken up. Now, I know, I know you, many of you brethren. I know you well. And, and the fact of the matter is I wouldn't be surprised that many of you have the same thoughts that I have. I would love to have more time to sit and read my Bible. I'd love to have more time to pray. I'd love to have more time to read books that are going to stir up my mind and, and focus them upon God, but I'd love to have more time for that. But, but you know, I, I, just, I just don't because there's six days of work to do in six days. There's seven days of work to do in six days. But now we've got a day that God says, here's the day for that, to fix your mind on me. Alec Mateer says this in, in bringing all this together. He says, true Sabbath keeping demands 
consecrating one's timetable to God. Take my moments and my days, let them, let them be filled with ceaseless praise. We, we sing that, but do we mean it? If we mean it, then wouldn't we want to be more engaged on the Sabbath, the one day we have to give ourselves to him? So we need to consecrate our timetable to God. But he goes on and says, but the Sabbath is also a test whether the heart delights in God. I can't tell you how many of the Puritans have very strong statements about people who don't like the Sabbath day and their spiritual state. As I said, Brooks says this was one of the downfalls of London and why, very likely why God brought this uh, conflagration, this great fire to London was because they had desecrated the Lord's Day. E.J. Young says, In the great calamity of the exile, that Isaiah is writing to these people, that was to come upon them, Isaiah stresses the Sabbath as, in a sense, the heart of true devotion to God. That's E.J. Young. As I said earlier, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Does your mouth speak highly of that one day in seven? Does it speak highly of that Sabbath day? Does it speak highly of the joy of being able to set aside a day as an exquisite delight, exquisite delight to fix your heart upon God? How do you honor a God who gives you a day? How do you honor somebody who gives you a gift? Well, one man summarized it in several statements, and I've reworded them. But this way, it says this. You receive the gift with joy and gratitude. If I'm going to honor somebody that's giving me a gift, I say, oh, I'm, well, thank you. I'm, I'm really, really thankful for that. And, you know, it's not the kind of gift. The Sabbath is not the kind of gift that ends up in the attic, or shouldn't be, that ends up in the attic two days after you get it. The Sabbath is to be something which you say, you know what? I'm going to wear that on my belt. I'm going to put that in my pockets. I'm going to keep that as in forefront of my mind. Why? Because it is such a precious gift. I receive it with joy and gratitude. But also to honor the day and to honor God, we guard it as a treasure with jealousy and carefulness. I'm going to set up some boundaries so that that day doesn't get trampled on, so that I don't trample on that day with my work boots or my tennis shoes or my, I am going to rework this so that I don't trample that day. I'm going to guard it with jealousy as the best day, the market day of the soul. And I'm going to be careful about it. We'll come back to some of this on the Lord's Day evening, how to be careful about protecting this day. But then I'm going to approach it as a feast with expectancy. I'm going to come and say, yo, man, there's, I can smell, the, there's going to be some good food out there. There's going to be some jerk chicken. There's going to be some chicken adobo or sinigan. There's going to be steak, whatever your favorite food is. It's like, that's, you say, okay, okay, it's going to be a feast. I don't know what's going to be served up. The preacher's going to serve it up. And I hope he doesn't serve it up at glop. But if he serves it up at glop, I'm going to eat it as though it's steak. Because I'm going to approach it with expectancy as I'm going to receive something. I'm going to view it as a royal audience with reverence. 
We're not going into the presence of anyone. We're going into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is going to affect everything. That affects how you dress. That affects how you think. And I'm not saying when I say that you've got to dress like me. I know I wear a suit and tie to bed. You know that. I'm not saying that's what it has to be. But in years gone by, we all had Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. We all had our Sunday best. And why did we have the Sunday best and not the Monday best? Because Sunday was the day we met with the most important being in the universe. And it reflected in the way that we dressed. I, I view it as a royal audience with reverence. I'm going to go in circumspect. Am I dealing with my sins properly? Am I looking to the one that I'm going to meet who's holy and righteous? This is how I honor him and honor his day. Now, I know, maybe some of you, you're thinking, well, but that's all Old Testament. Well, okay, maybe it is, but if it's just Old Testament, then we are worse off if we don't have such a day. I don't think that God would give such a gift and take it away. Matter of fact, I know he doesn't. And we'll see that on the Lord's Day. Well, let's move on because there's more here. The prophetic addition of promises. The prophetic addition of promises to the commandment, verse 14. Because he goes on and he says, Then you will take delight in Yahweh, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the inheritance of Jacob your father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Well, the first thing he promises is he promises delight. But where's that delight to be found? Then you will take delight in Yahweh. 1982, I, I was um, promised, a woman promised to marry me. And uh, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she was in Colorado. And I, and I bought something really special and small, came in a little box that I was going to give her to seal that promise. And I was just thrilled. I was driving up to Colorado, where I was born and reared. And I was going to see the Rocky Mountains, and I was going to see Cheyenne Canyon with all of its green and, and all the trails that were there. And, and there was just so much that was out there in front of me. that said, this is really, really, really exciting. But you know what? There was one thing more than anything else that I wanted to see. And that was two brown eyes looking back at me. She was the delight the exquisite delight in the midst of all that pleasure, that pleasure that I would experience going back to Colorado. She was that exquisite delight. And that's what he's saying here. And all that there is of the blessings that come on the Lord's day, on, on, on the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, all that, it finds its focus in Yahweh himself. It finds its focus there. He is the reason the day is so special. The focus now changes slightly, doesn't it? It's away from the day itself to the person who's on that day. You see, it's not just the day. It's not just the rest. It's not just the blessings we're going to receive. It's being in the presence of Yahweh, the great I am, on his day with his people to commune with him. This is what the, the Sabbath was designed for. That you may know that I am Yahweh, who set you apart. Therefore, you are to observe 
the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Exodus 31, 13, and 14. Exodus, Ezekiel 20, verses, verse 12. I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. It goes on in verse 20, he says, that they might know that I am Yahweh, your God. To delight in the day, one must delight in the God of the day. And to delight in the God, one must delight in the day. You can't separate the two. This is why God's not interested in gloomy Christians. Because <laughs> we have a great and glorious God who is our God and we are his people. And we have the privilege of delighting in him. It's not about just a bunch of restrictions and do's and don'ts. It's about being able to do what my heart's desire is. To worship God, to be in God's presence, to enjoy the, the God of heaven and earth. Let's pause at this point and just ask you, do you know this God? Do you know him? Do you know the Lord of heaven and earth, the glorious and benevolent creator who created all things in a beautiful order for the good of man? And even after the fall continues to richly bless us with so many good things, even in the midst of all the thorns and the thistles? Do you know this wonderful God who is so powerful, a redeemer, that he could redeem a whole nation out of captivity to slavery and bring them to himself? And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God today as he was back then in Israel's day. He is a glorious, benevolent creator, and he is a gracious, powerful redeemer. If you do not know this God, then thank God he has given you at least one day every week for you to get to know him. Now you can know him throughout the week, reading your Bible and all, but he's given you one day to really draw near and meet with him, that you might know him, that he is God. And for the vast majority of you who do know God, he has given us a weekly Sabbath as a special gift for us to spend time with the one who is more precious than any. What a glorious privilege. Our constant prayer should be when we come into the house of God, when we gather on his day, is show me your glory. Show me your glory in the, the singing of the hymns of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Show me your glory in the reading of the scriptures. Show me your glory in the preaching of the word. Show me your glory as I interact with the brethren, that with all the saints I might know what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Paul says, with all the saints is where you learn those kinds of things. Where do the saints meet on his day in particular? It's a day in which we can consider and contemplate who this God is, his compassions, his kindness, his holiness, his righteousness, his infinity, his eternity, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his power. It's a day when we can concentrate on, on the reality of the Trinity. There's something to blow your mind just to kind of sit and think about. How can three be one and one be three? 
And so there's a sense in which we can say, what you sow, you will reap. What you put into the day will affect what you get out of it. Can you say with the psalmist, I want to delight myself in Yahweh, that he will give me the desires of my heart. That's the preeminent promise, the promise of delight. But he goes on and adds to that a promise of victory. These words, he goes on and says, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. A lot of ink spent on what it means, the heights of the earth. But to ride is just a, is, is to cause to ride. And it's, and it's something that God says, I will, I will mount you up, as it were, with special care, like Moses did with uh, his for his family when he sent or when he sent for them or like David did when he took care of the ark didn't do it the right way but he did mount it up on a cart why because he wanted to take care of it just did it improperly he should have mounted it up on the shoulders of levites this word to mount up is it shows it shows a matter of care and concern you're going to set them in a place that they might be transported carefully and comfortably but primarily, these words, I'm convinced at this point, will come from the book of Deuteronomy. So if you turn with me briefly to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32. What does it mean, mount up on the heights? Deuteronomy. This is Moses' final song that the people of God were supposed to sing. And in this song, he begins in verse 4 to say, The rock... His work is perfect. All of his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright. And he says, this is my focus. I'm thinking upon this God, Yahweh. I'm going to ascribe to him greatness. Verse 3, he goes on to talk about how the people are not going to be faithful. But then he says in verse 7, Remember the ancient days. Consider the years from generation to generation. Ask your father and he will declare to you, your elders, and they will speak to you. Verse, verse 8, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found them in a desert land, in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. So God saw Israel out there, he cared for them, he brought them to himself. He took them up like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them, he carried them in his pinions. You see this, all this poetic language Moses is writing to say how he cared for his people through the wilderness journey. And then it says in verse 12, Yahweh alone guided them, and there was no foreign God with them. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock, with the fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats, with the finest of the wheat and the blood and grapes he drank, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked." He says, what I, what's this a picture of? All this poetic language. How God cared for his people through the wilderness, picked them up and brought them in, and brought them into the land of Canaan, and conquered all of their enemies, and gave them the land flowing with milk and honey. This is the picture he's describing for them. 
He's describing for them this riding on the hills, or riding over the hills. He's mounted them, as it were, to be victorious over everything that would stand in their way, whether in the wilderness or in the promised land, everything that would stand in their way to give them their inheritance. This is what God is promising. This This is what the song is about. It's describing what God did for his people in the past. And the prophet picks up on this language and says, this is what we get, this is what we can expect when we gather on Yahweh's day. It's a day of victory for God to mount us up and to help us have victory, to inherit the land he's given to us. Now, he hasn't given us any land, brethren. New Jersey is not the promised land. Washington's not the promised land. New York's not the promised land. No, he hasn't given us a piece of real estate anywhere. What's he given us? Well, he's given us a hope of heaven. Ultimately, it's going to be heaven. That's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of this. And we have, but to get there, we have to be carried through the wilderness and ride over every enemy that's going to stand in our way in order to get us there. Enemies without and enemies within. So he's promising to his people on his day that come and delight in him, he's promising them a measure of victory. Preservation and victory and the hope, and even in part, the inheritance that's yet to come. Because we have received part of that inheritance, right? You all know what that part is that we received. It's the down payment that he gave us in the Spirit. The Spirit working within us is already causing us to have those victories over sin and enemies of our soul. And he's saying, using the song of Moses, Isaiah, God through Isaiah is saying, this is one of the ways that my people are going to be preserved to the end to receive their inheritance. It's through keeping a Sabbath rest. This is where I help them along in their victory. And this is where I feed them from the heritage of Jacob. Here's where they feed on some of that inheritance that is theirs in Jacob. Some of that promised land richness. They have some of it where? On my day. When they delight in Yahweh, he says, then is when he will make them ride on the heights and he will feed them with the heritage of his father. This is where we taste of those rich blessings. This is the promise of an inheritance, not only a promise of delight in Yahweh, a promise of victory through Yahweh's help, and a promise of provision, an inheritance that we will have partially now and ultimately in heaven. Now, clearly, I think what we should take away from this for us today is clearly is spiritual blessings that are in view. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 16, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Psalm 111 and verse 6, he has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them a heritage among the nations. Or Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper and every tongue that accuses you in judgment will be condemned. This is the heritage of the of the servants of Yahweh, and their vindication is from me, declares Yahweh. Keeping the Sabbath is intimately tied then to us 
for us is intimately tied with prospering, prospering in grace, prospering in, in holiness. It's intimately tied to making progress. It truly is the market day of the soul, as the Puritans called it. And all of this, then, he seals with this last word, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. These aren't empty words. These are Yahweh's words. And when Yahweh speaks, it's sealed. It is certain. So I end with some application, just say to you, ask you some questions. Is your joy of the Lord stunted? Could it be that you're not enjoying the Lord as much as you might like because of the way you treat the Sabbath? If you're not delighting in God's day, it will affect your ability to delight in God every day. If you're not delighting in the Lord when you will not delight in meeting If you are not delighting in the Lord, then you will not delight in meeting with him on his day. We need to do the difficult work of realigning our hearts to God's perspectives, to God's priorities, so that we can say with reality, with sincerity, this day is an exquisite delight to me. And that's not because of any particular preacher standing in the pulpit. And that's not because any particular person is sitting next to you in the pew. That's because it's the place where God dwells with his people. By his spirit, Christ present among his people. Fathers, do your children look at you and say, Daddy really likes to go to church. He really loves to delight in God. Do they look at you and say, man? Well, I'd like to give you an example here. One, one young lady uh, was at, at the university and she was sharing the gospel with, with, uh, somebody, with a, a fellow student. And the fellow student looked at her and said, you are so crazy. Oh, oh no, I blew it. What did I say wrong? I've never known anybody who loves God like you do. And the response was, come to my church. There's a whole bunch of us. Are you one of those? Do your brethren look around and say, wow, he really loves, I love standing up here to watch you, watch the brethren sing. The ones that put their heads back and you can see it in their face. The ones who have it memorized. The ones who are intent. The ones I don't like. Doing nothing. We're just looking around. Nothing coming out their mouths. That's not honoring God on his day. Fathers, do children see you and they say, I want to be like daddy because he really loves God. And I see it brings joy to his heart that carries him all the way through the week. Brethren, do visitors see you and say, wow, these people really seem to get engaged here. I love also singing with all you men behind me, because I get to hear all those voices. But do they just say, wow, those people really love God. It's obvious they are doing this with all their hearts. Is your delight in God contagious? So we should be striving for among the brethren. 
Secondly, could it be that you are not progressing in holiness because of your treatment of the Christian Sabbath? God promises victory when we delight in his day, when we delight in him. God promises victory to those who consider the day and call the day an honor. Ultimately, that victory will only come when he returns, right? When he finally defeats all of our enemies. But the fact of the matter is, one of the ways that he helps us to address the sin in our lives and grow and have victory is through delighting in him, in his presence, on his day. Now, how sad is it to sit and have a whole day of, of worship and even end with the Lord's Supper and then go out and the next morning wake up as though nothing ever happened? How sad. But it's all designed by God that we delight in him and that carries us through into the next few days until we can come back again into his presence again. Is he making you to ride on the high places as overcomers? Romans 8.37 says we are overcomers through Christ. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, John says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And where is our faith strengthened in the presence of God? So are you observing the Sabbath with a desire to, to grow and put to death sin? Is your joy of heaven, thirdly, is your joy of heaven weak? Could it be that you're just not cherishing the taste of heaven, the foretaste that we have once a week? Which is just a picture not only of what Christ has already done for us, but what he's yet to do for us. Maybe it's just too faint because we're not really appreciating what we have as a foretaste here. And so I ask you then, how do you approach the Sabbath day? Purposefully or haphazardly? Considerately or thoughtlessly? Passionately or apathetically? Reverently or flippantly? Joyfully or grudgingly? Expectantly or unbelievingly? I think there's three great dangers that I've come across as I studied this that we face in America today. Three great dangers. You have them there in your notes, I believe. Three great dangers. One is pharisaical legalism and formalism, that we just have all these rules about what you're supposed to do and what you can't do, and I'm going to hold everybody around me to those rules. Well, let's, let's remind ourselves what legalism means. Legalism is my setting up human rules on a par with God's rules. That's one way that legalism shows itself. Another way legalism is manifested is when I say, in order for you to get to heaven, you have to keep my rules. Or you earn something from God by keeping his rules. Those, that's legalism. It's not legalism to be strict. If that were the case, Jesus was the greatest legalist. It's not legalist to be strict. It's applying my rules to others in a way which is beyond my sphere of authority. It's saying you have to keep my rules if you want to get to heaven. We're really in danger of this, right? To be just being formalist, just running through the motions, because now we've heard it, right? We have to call the Sabbath a sweet, exquisite delight. So we're always enjoying the exquisite delight today. Um, um, oh, yeah, yeah, no. The Lord is more concerned, as I read earlier, with our enjoyment of his blessings through obedience to his commands 
than our self-imposed deprivation. The Lord is more concerned with the enjoyment of his blessings through obedience to his commands than in self-imposed deprivation. The other thing is Corinthian materialism, and I think this is far greater a problem for us here in America, is that we import our, our pleasures into God's day and we make God's day into our day that we get what we want out of, what, of God and what we want rather than what God wants. Being only concerned about how things make me feel or about how, what I'm going to get out of it instead of eagerly waiting for his holy day to meet with him. I, I, I still wish the, the day were longer. We have, long, we have long mornings here at Trinity. I don't know if you ever know that, but people go out at, at, at 1230 when we're saying, it's a ha- good morning. Well, it's not morning really anymore. We still feel like it's morning because we're still worshiping, right? We're still delighting in one another. Eagerly waiting for the day. Are you just saying, I can't wait for this to get over so I can get on with life? That's Corinthian materialism. But then the other one is American individualism. Being satisfied with my own personal time with God over meeting with God on his holy day with his people. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, and he's talking about a church that's gotten down to the size of two or three people because they're exercising church discipline in Matthew 18. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Redeemer of his people is going to meet with his people when they gather. But we say, you know, my, my personal time's better. An illustration for you, and with this I'll close. Imagine that, uh, since I'm talking to men, I'll just say men. Imagine that you have Friday evenings off and Saturday mornings off, and it is family time. And you have set it aside that every Friday night you're going to do something with the family, call all the kids together, wife, get all together, and you're going to do something special. Every Friday night and every Saturday morning, you get up, you make special breakfast for everyone. Maybe you do this. Right? And so you make this special bread, you've got everything set up. And your wife, you know, the first, first time you, you're, you do this, uh, honey, I, I really can't make it Saturday morning. Um, I, I, I just, I've just been busy. You know, so, okay, well, you know, I understand that sometimes happens. Providential hindrance and all. But Saturday after Saturday comes. And then when you say, honey, you, you're, you're never there with us on Saturdays. You know, sweetheart, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I read your love letters to me every morning. Remember those ones you wrote when we were dating? Oh, man, they're so sweet, and there's poetry in them, and you were just really waxing eloquent, and I just, I love reading those letters. Well, where are you on Saturday? Oh, uh, you know, it's just so much to do. I really can't make it for Saturday morning with the family. You going to be satisfied with that? You say, oh yeah, she really loves me. The one time I'm actually giving myself to be present and to be with her and to spend time with her and to do her good and to bring the family together, she won't come, but she's reading my letters. You get the point. Oh sure, we should read God's word every single day to feed our souls every single day. We should pray every single day, but that is not the reason or not better than the Lord's day. It's not. Because this is the day, he says, I will meet with you. And so this leads me to a, a, a recommendation. There's a series that Pastor 
Chansky preached a while back called, he took it from one of the Puritans, I don't remember, David Clarkson, it was, public worship to be preferred over private. I encourage you to listen to it as a, an addendum to this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we plead with you that you would work in our hearts and we would be given your spirit to do heart work, to truly delight in you more, to delight in your day more. Help us, Father. Uh, we're weak, we're sinful, we're distracted, we're just feeble creatures. And so we cast ourselves upon you and plead for forgiveness and plead for grace in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.